0: the Belt and Road Podcast, brought to you by the Belt and Road Advisory, your professional advisors on all matters concerning the Belt and Road Initiative. Voices of the Belt and Road is our flagship podcast, and with each episode, we'll hear the personal stories of people who are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. The aim of this podcast is to demystify the initiative by interviewing a broad array of people whose lives are impacted day in and day out by the world's largest cross-border trade initiative and infrastructure build On this podcast, in addition to university researchers, think tank experts, and policymakers, you can also hear from business people, workers, and countless others involved in the Belt and Road. You'll hear people tell their own personal stories in their own languages, because at the end of the day, the Belt and Road Initiative is changing people's lives, and we want you to hear it from them. Please enjoy this week's podcast, and thanks for
1: tuning in. Welcome to the Voices of the Belt and Road podcast. I'm your host, Greg Stead. Today we'll be talking about China-EU relations and EU's perception of the Belt and Road Initiative. With us is a formidable expert, director of Europe and geopolitics at the influential Friends of Europe think tank, professor at College of Europe and a renowned EU-Asia relations commentator, Shada Islam. Shada, it is a pleasure to have you on the show.
2: Thank you. It's pleasure's pleasure it's all mine.
1: Please tell us a bit about your background and Friends of Europe. What is it that you do?
2: So Friends of Europe is one of the leading think tanks based in Brussels. We're non-partisan, so no political affiliation. And our quest is to really change the narrative around Europe. And in my case, the narrative around Europe and the bigger uh, world outside. We have a slogan, which is Debate, Connect... Change And it's about bringing different stakeholders together to talk about the big issues of the day. We do this through our publications. We have a regular series of articles called Frankly Speaking, which are really bold and full of, you know, recommendations for EU policymakers. And we do this through our events as well. And constant engagement, if you like, with our members and partners. Greg, myself, um, I'm Belgian. I was born in Pakistan. I used to be a journalist based in Brussels. Working for a magazine that unfortunately has folded now. It was called the Far Eastern Economic Review. Based in Hong Kong, I was their European correspondent and I was became very passionate about the Europe-Asia relationship. I followed that narrative, that discussion uh, between Europe and Asia for years and years. And when the magazine folded, I decided that it was time to sort of move up a gear in terms of analysis. And I joined a think tank called European Policy Center. And for the last seven years, I've been at Friends of Europe, where I've set up the Asia program, but now working more a more large, if you like, ambit, which covers Europe and developing countries, emerging markets, etc.
1: How is Belt and Road Initiative currently perceived in Europe? And given the fact that it's been around already for five years, are there any specific periods, any evolution or shifts in the EU's perception of BRI?
2: Yes, indeed. The situation at the moment, as you know, Greg, is very complicated. I would say that Europe has gone through several phases. We've seen initially, five years ago, curiosity about this project. It was followed by confusion and caution. And now, five years on, I think we're beginning to see a certain pragmatism and some ideas about taking this forward in in terms of cooperation but not on China's terms. So the EU has taken a long time, I would say a very long time, too long a time to react in a sensible, well-thought-out manner. And in fact, if you look closely, there still is no joint European, shared European view on the Belt and Road Initiative. Policymakers in Brussels actually like to talk about connectivity rather than BRI. I'm going to give you a little bit of an idea of what are the factors, the many factors that are playing into EU views about the BRI at the moment. Now, there is the whole geopolitical angle. Europe is been shaken and stirred by A, B, C of changing geopolitics. Now, A stands for America first. Uh, U.S. President Donald Trump has really shaken Europe's transatlantic relationship, and Europe finds itself a little orphaned, if you like, having lost the anchor that was Washington when it came to the big, wide international stage, multilateral relationships, and the rest of it. That's A. B is Brexit. Now, you know, the fact that Britain is leaving, withdrawing from the European Union has also fragilized the European Union, as you can imagine, considerably. And C, of course, stands for a rising China. The rise of China, the rapid rise of China, has also caused a great deal of, I would say, unease. And the Europeans now feel slightly overwhelmed by the different ways in which China has gone very quickly from being a junior partner in this relationship to being an equal. And that requires a lot of changing uh, policies, changing tools, changing narratives about what is China today. Uh, All of this, of course, is compounded by the fact that there is confusion about what the Belt and Road Initiative is all about. And I think China has not been very good at explaining to its foreign partners what the BRI is all about. China has a vision. But Europeans like to work on the basis of details, projects, schemes, who's going to be working with whom, what are the details of these arrangements, these partnerships that are coming out. And so it's been for the Europeans um, a journey to try and understand what this is all about, how's the money, uh, where's the money coming from? How is the money going to be spent? Which are the countries engaged? What are the risks involved? And are developing countries vulnerable to the debt issues that they're taking on, the debt trap issue? The third factor that is really uh, dominant in the EU views on China at the moment and the BRI specifically are that China is trying to divide the European Union. EU member states, 28 at the moment, 27 as of next uh, April, have very differing views on on China. There's competition and rivalry among these countries. The 28 come together through the EU institutions and try and forge uh, a, a common and shared uh, view on China. It's not always possible. But to make things um, more complicated even is that China is very busy with its 16 plus one initiative uh, with the Central and Eastern European countries, including the Balkan countries, which as you know, are lining up uh, to try and join the European Union. And there the concern Europe has is that China's investment plans in the Balkans are changing the power relationship between the Balkan countries and the EU.
1: Referring to the new China resolution by the European Parliament, do you think that we're going to see a more solidified EU response to BRI?
2: We're in flux. This whole relationship and these perceptions are in flux. A great deal, really, to be very frank, will depend on how China deals with the major geopolitical changes that are happening uh, around us. Uh, Just to to, to talk about two things. China is seen as a very valuable partner when it comes to the big challenge of climate change. That is one of the uh, positive uh, items on the EU-China agenda, and uh, this is something that Europeans really want to take forward. The other is the bigger issue also of uh, nuclearization or denuclearization and how China is supporting deal that has been done with Iran on denuclearization and hopes here in Europe that when the conversation with the North Koreans goes further, China will be there as a partner also. Those elements come in as well. So, it's a it's a multifaceted relationship. Now, to come back to the, the Belt and Road and the new um, strategies that are being planned here. So, the European Parliament Resolution... Um, I think, reflects the changing mood in Europe when it comes to China. Many, many things have come into it. You know, I talked about confusion about over the BRI, but there's also unease about the rising levels of Chinese investments in Europe, especially in sectors which are viewed as strategic. The, the big conversation now in Europe when it looks at China is about reciprocity, market access, opening up, reform of the Chinese economy. There's an overarching um, narrative here in Europe, which is in a sense similar to what Washington is saying, um, that China's market is still too closed to foreign enterprises and that it's an uneven playing field where the West is still very open to Chinese exports, Chinese investments, but China is not as open as it could be or should be. So there is a little uh, a change. In 2015, when the European Parliament brought, up, brought out its last uh, resolution on China, it was very starry-eyed. It was about, you know, um, there, were, there was a rising concern about uh, changes in the transatlantic relationship. Uh, Donald Trump, even though he wasn't president then, was uh, actually talking very openly openly about withdrawing from the multilateral framework. There was concern about the future of the World Trade Organization. And China, Xi Jinping's statements about globalization, about openness were, were very heartening, very reassuring. Since then disillusionment has set in, um, disappointment has set in. European companies are clamoring on the doors of the European Union, knocking very hard, saying, guys, the EU has to take up our cause and, and you know really try and open up Chinese markets. And that's what this resolution says. It shows Europe getting a little tired of, of always asking for opening up of uh, Chinese markets and being told, not yet, we're planning to do so, but it's not going to happen yet. So I think, you know, this is going to be a big issue going forward. There is an EU-China connectivity platform as well, which is not the same thing as connectivity strategy. The EU-China connectivity platform has been set up by uh, the European Commission, not by the External Action Service. And this is something rather constructive and positive, the idea being that the Europeans have the trans-European networks. These are also European connectivity infrastructure projects that the European Union wants And is developing within the 28 countries to boost infrastructure links, to boost jobs and growth. And then China has its BRI. And this connectivity platform, three years old, tries to bring together the two very different ideas, if you like, visions, into some kind of a synergetic cooperation. It's been going there, it's been going on for three years, and I've been told by reliable sources that it's making progress. Now, obviously no joint ventures that i know of have been published just yet but these things take time and i think this connectivity platform is a positive sort of response of the european union to the bri it'll be working on issues of transport connectivity but also decarbonization digitalization and also innovation in
1: those in those aspects this is where bri complements the eu's regional development projects but in what aspects BRI would contradict EU's regional development project?
2: Well, I think the, the concern, you know, was um, really about the way that um, these projects, the BRI projects, uh, are being Developed and if I if I could use the word sold to many of the uh, countries in the Balkans in the Central and Eastern European countries uh, and also in Asia and Africa. Now you may have seen that there was a statement that was put out by uh, 27 European ambassadors in uh, in Beijing about the BRI, and you will have realize that the concerns really have to do with a couple of things that are quite important about the lack of transparency of these projects. So, there is a great deal of concern that though China talks very big and openly about the BRI, the details are not very transparent. The European Union doesn't really know what projects, which projects are being uh, implemented, even within the EU. For instance, the Budapest-Belgrade Uh, high-speed railway link, there wasn't very much news or information provided to the EU about that. And then when that project got underway and the EU was given some details, as you know, the European Commission put a stop to some uh, some of its implementation because it didn't meet the open procurement standards that the European Union has. So, transparency is a big issue for the EU when it comes to the BRI. Accountability is another one. Uh, Who's accountable for these projects? When things go wrong in implementation, uh, who can you turn to to redress the errors that are being made? There's concern about the environmental impact of some of these projects as well, Greg, because if you look at, say, the uh, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, investments are being made in coal-fired plants. And of course, we know that uh, there could be environmental damage from there. Um, There's also the whole issue, the broader issue of government governance, which companies can tender for these projects. European companies are saying that despite their initial enthusiasm, some of them are not being allowed to put in tenders for these uh, for these plants. So they're being excluded and that, you know, the privilege of working on BRI projects is being reserved exclusively for Chinese, uh, Chinese company. There's also the question of uh, norms and standards, labor standards, pollution standards I've talked about. And more recently, the fact that China has set up uh, or is in the process of setting up arbitration uh, settled dispute settlement systems. And there is concern in some parts of Europe that what uh, China is doing is setting up a new world trade organization, whereby uh, the entire uh, global community, uh, when it comes to infrastructure and connectivity, will be uh, forced, obliged to comply with Chinese set rules. So, you know, we're bringing in very nitty-gritty issues of detail of the projects themselves under the BRI, but the wider economic uh, geopolitical uh, elements of this strategy as well.
1: We talked a lot about fears, concerns, and what about success stories so far? Can we see concrete success stories of BRI from the viewpoint of the EU?
2: I think this is one of the weaknesses of the BRI at the moment, that sitting here where we are in Brussels, all we're getting are negative stories about how governments in Myanmar, in Malaysia, even even in Pakistan, are having second thoughts uh, about that, or at least trying to renegotiate uh, some of the key elements of the BRI. Let me tell you about two things which I think are quite constructive. The relationship is not just based on lack of trust and sort of of mutual suspicion. This EU-Asian connectivity uh, strategy, what is really needed at the moment are our rules and standards and norms for connectivity projects worldwide, a kind of regulatory framework, if you like, that the Europeans have experience in. Because, you know, within Europe, we have connectivity as well, transport connectivity and other connectivity. And if the European Union can put forward neutral uh, universally acknowledged norms and standards which are fair, um, I think there will be an attraction for them with, uh, in the world, and perhaps even China would be quite, I think, uh, tempted to adopt standards which are more universally, if you like, compliant with certain uh, standards to do with the environment, with labor standards, etc. So, I think there is a potential for synergies there. There's also going to be a, a meeting of the Asia-Europe uh, leaders, as. Meeting in the mid in mid October in in Brussels, and there uh, the EU will be unveiling an ASEM uh, Sustainable Connectivity Index, and that is something that is a kind of a database which will bring together all the different connectivity projects that exist in Europe and Asia. Try and see where there are synergies and cooperation possible, but also try and see where there are there are gaps, if you like. So you know this would make the whole um, strategy, the whole idea. Idea of a BRI much more rational and, and and sensible from the Western perspective. So, you look at the gaps, you look at what already exists, you see where people can work together. So, it's more strategic, if you like, than just one big program, one vision uh, unveiled and with others people just um, are being asked to opt in. You know, this would be more cooperative. So, the idea would be if it works, to try and multilateralize the BRI. Now, I don't know uh, if China is ready to do that. Some Chinese scholars tell me that, yes, that would be absolutely perfect. This is what we want. This is not just a China-driven project. This is just not unilateral. We want it to be globally accepted and globally um, uh, beneficial. Uh, But let's see how that develops. So there's a lot of interesting conversations going on at the moment. It's not just all negative.
1: I would also like to return to something that you mentioned at the beginning uh, about EU's viewpoints being divided, that there are multiple actors obviously involved on the European side. So when we say that EU hopes, EU fears, EU has concerns, who do we actually mean?
2: That's a very, very good question, and uh, I totally uh, agree with you that you know we use the term EU or Europe or Europeans, uh, and of course you know Europe is uh, is is not you know one story. There are many, many different actors, many different drivers that we've talked about as well. So at the, if you like, in a sense, at the apex of all this are the EU institutions. So you have the External Action Service, you have the European Commission, you have the European Parliament, you have the European Council of Ministers, and and they work uh, here uh, in Brussels, and this is where there is some kind of a coordination element, a common approach that is being developed. So, when I talk about the EU, I'm actually talking about a, a joint uh, narrative that is being developed by these different institutions based here in Brussels. They disagree a little bit amongst themselves, but the overarching, the overarching themes and the overarching concerns are very similar. So, you could say that there is an EU point of view um, that is on China or on other countries as well, which is being developed, forged, crafted, uh, fashioned here in Brussels by the EU institutions. And now the EU institutions take into account uh, views that are, of course, coming from national capitals and tries to bring all these elements together. It doesn't always work. So when it comes to foreign policy, especially when it comes to a country as big and as important as China, every country still retains its sovereign right, if you like, in foreign policy to have its own opinion. So you'll see, you know, everyone's pursuing their own interests while at the same time being part of the bigger EU. Now, in the case of the Belt and Road Initiative, Greg, you also have, and this is very important, you also have regional governments that are very closely involved in this because, you know, BRI will run and, you know, these projects run through very important regions of, of Europe. So regional governments have their own approach and some of them that I've talked to are sceptical. Some of them are not. So, you know, this, there's a little bit of uh, lack of consistency there as well. European business also complicated because some some con- some companies feel they're not being part of this uh, initiative. They're being excluded. They're seeing as too, you know, too, too much of a complication petition for Chinese companies, but others are being brought in. Now, the big concern is will Europe's small and medium-sized enterprises, SMEs, which are, if you like, the backbone of the European economy, how much will they be allowed to participate in the BRI? And that, I think, is going to be very important. And finally, and this is not something that you can neglect or sideline in Europe, you have civil society as well. So, the European view is, uh, is has to factor in a number of different interests, a number of different drivers. And then you can understand that it's not always easy, as in the case of the BRI, to come up with a joint vision, a joint strategy.
1: To wrap it up with a bit of prediction from from your side, you mentioned uh, ABC as the major concerns of EU. So how would you see the relationship between US, China and EU being developed, EU in this triangle relationship? And what role would the BRI play within that?
2: So this is going to be the big story of our uh, maybe our decade. Europe, as I said to you, initially feels bereft because it's being attacked by U.S. President Donald Trump on a number of fronts. And uh, there is also, of course, concern about Russian meddling. The European Parliament elections next May, there is real concern that there will be Russian uh, support, uh, direct or indirect, for populist parties in Europe. There's also Steve Bannon from the United States uh, uh, who's setting up the so-called movement in Brussels to um, uh, to provide support to all sort of populist and nationalist ethno-nationalist parties in Europe? So there's a big struggle going on here, really, for the soul of Europe, if you like, and that's that's the big drama that is going on at the moment. And the EU-China relationship, or the triangle, as you've called it, is is just one part of this wider soul-searching story that's going on in Europe. Now, I think on a number of trade issues, uh, the EU would actually uh, agree with the us that you know the chinese market needs to be opened up and but it disagrees with the methods uh, that the us is taking unilateral slapping of tariffs etc i think this is causing a great deal of concern here so the european union is, is adopting its own approach which is to try and engage with china on uh, domestic opening up domestic reforms I think a, a great deal of the future relationship will depend on how China responds to that. I do hope China responds positively because I think that will change once again the narrative here in Brussels. The other thing that China and Europe are, are working on is uh, less well known, but that's about reforming the World Trade Organization. Now everyone agrees with Donald Trump that the system is slightly broken, needs to be fixed, needs to be adapted to the 21st century, and there, if China and and the EU can work. Work together. I think this will give a positive boost to this relationship. The other thing, of course, is um, climate change. And you may have seen that there was a, a special declaration on EU-China efforts at combating climate change that came up, that came out in July. I think that will take the relationship forward as well as will the relationship over Iran and North Korea. But I think there are many areas of common ground. Um, let me just tell you that Federica Mogherini, who is the EU High Representative for Foreign and Security Policy, was speaking at the European Parliament after the resolution uh, was published by the, by the Parliament, and she said something which I think is really the key. We do not always see eye to eye. We have some fundamental disagreements that are very evident. But as two global powers, we both understand that our cooperation is essential to address the main challenges we face. And then she talked about the multilateral trading system. She talked about Iran. But she also makes a point which I think is very, very interesting. She talked about Africa. And she said, you know, we are uh, – this is a priority for Europe and China is very active in Africa. China has the funds that sometimes Europe doesn't have uh, to invest in Africa. Why don't we work together? To bring growth and jobs and prosperity to Africa. And one of the ways I think Europe can actually do that is by conducting uh, joint um, strategies, China, Europe, Africa, where China could provide the cash, which it it is already doing. But Europe could come in with its expertise, its experience, its norms, its standards, its advice, and help countries in Africa, and perhaps also in Asia, to negotiate in a a more articulate fashion uh, with with the Chinese. I think this would be win-win, really, for everyone.
1: Why don't we work together? That closes (laughs) it for today. Shada, thank you for all the great insights on China-EU relations and the EU's perception of the Belt and Road Initiative. It's Quite some food for thought that we got from you. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: This week's Voices of the Belton Road podcast. If you want to learn more about the Belton Road Initiative, check out our website at BeltonRoad Ventures. That's Belton Road, one word, no spaces, and dot Ventures. V E N T U R E S. On the website, you can subscribe to our weekly Belton Road Bulletin and also follow our Belton Road Advisory social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. That way, you'll always be up to date on what is happening on the Belton Road. Thanks for tuning in, and see you next week.